First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to the book of Ruth that was just read for us a moment ago? And I'm excited today to be able to kick off this new teaching series for Christmas this year called It Happened in Bethlehem. Uh, certainly, when we think about that little town of Bethlehem, we uh, all, of course, think about uh, one of the most important events that ever happened uh, in the history of the world, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll be talking about that event more and more as uh, we get closer and closer to Christmas Day. But for the next couple of weeks, I want us to think about a few of the other things that happened in the Bible in this little town uh, of Bethlehem. And even though these stories that we're going to look at the next couple of weeks in the Old Testament uh, may not uh, seem like at first they have a whole lot to do with Christmas, uh, they actually do have a lot to do with Christmas because everything in the Old Testament uh, was written to get us ready for Bethlehem, uh, where our Savior would be born for us. Today we're going to study the book of Ruth, which is one of my favorite books uh, in all the Bible. Uh, I love the story of this book, and, and I know many believers uh, love uh, this book of Ruth. Uh, I think uh, perhaps for some of them, it's because it is a beautiful love story uh, that is included for us here uh, in the Word of God. Uh, now, you know, when you think about Christmas and love stories, uh, I know a lot of people, when they hear Christmas and love stories, they think about Hallmark Christmas movies. And it seems like Hallmark Christmas movies start like, I mean, they start like weeks before Thanksgiving now. And, and they make, it seems to me like they make like 87 of them every year. And now listen, if you like Hallmark Christmas movies, I don't mean to offend you. And, and in fact, uh, I have some very close family members of mine that are big Hallmark uh, Christmas movie fans. But, but I do give them a hard time about those movies because it seems like to me th those Hallmark movies have like three different plots. And, and they just kind of like rotate between them, you know? And like if, if you walk into a room and, and, and in the first five minutes of watching a Hallmark Christmas movie, you can already tell what the plot is. And you know how it's gonna end, right? You're like, okay, this is plot number two. This is the one where the girl goes to her hometown with her city slicker boyfriend, but then she realizes that it was really the, the country boy from high school that she was supposed to be with after all. And I mean, and you know how this thing is gonna end, right? You have to watch the end, right? Am I right? And yet I'm so thankful that the book of Ruth is not like a Hallmark Christmas movie. It is considered by many, even some secular critics of literature, to be one of the finest short stories that has ever been written. It is a beautifully told love story. But of course, it is a part of God's word, the Bible, because it is a love story that we all still need to hear today. And that's because what happens in this story is much bigger than even concerns the two main characters, Ruth and Boaz. What happens in this story is still impacting our lives today. In fact, here's what I hope we'll discover along the way today, that this love story is a part of our love story. That this is God's love story with all of us who are his children. Now, fair warning before we uh, dive in here. Several years ago, I preached through the whole book of Ruth, 
and uh, we took a month to do so. And uh, I only have one morning to preach through Ruth today. And so I'm really not sure when the next service is going to begin. We may be here uh, for quite a while. Uh, here together. But no, we'll, we'll keep it to the time that we have, but we will have to move quickly and just hit the highlights of this beautiful story. But first off, as we think about what kind of love story this is, I want us to see that uh, this is a love story about faithful love that never leaves our side. If you look at the first verse of the book of Ruth with me, Ruth 1 verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And so the time period of this story of the book of Ruth is the time of the judges. Now that was after the time when uh, Israel uh, went into the promised land under that great leader, Joshua. But it was before uh, the time when they had King Saul and King David and King Solomon and all the rest. And we know from the Bible that this time period of the judges was not a super happy time in Israel's history. This was a time when they were caught in a vicious cycle of sin and the judgment of God. And and yet against that dark backdrop uh, of the judges, this story is a bright light that shines in that midst of that darkness. And it reminds us that God's plan was still unfolding, that God was working for the salvation of his people through one family that was trying to survive in the middle of a famine. Now it's ironic that they're having a famine in Bethlehem because the the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And yet in the house of bread, they had no bread. And so this man that verse 1 introduces us to, Elimelech, takes his wife Naomi and his two sons, and he decides to move, to leave Bethlehem, to move to the neighboring country of Moab. Now this was a questionable decision. Uh, It seems to have been driven more by pragmatism than it was by faith. And very quickly after moving to Moab, things begin to go downhill for this Family. In fact, in the 10 years that this family lived in Moab, uh, they would experience three different funerals. And the first funeral was for Elimelech himself, who passed away shortly after they moved to Moab. But at least at this point in the story, Elimelech's widow, Naomi, still had her two sons. And we find out that her two sons get married. And I'm sure Naomi was imagining in her mind the day when she would be able to hold uh, her grandchildren uh, in her arms. But sadly, that was not to be, at least not yet. Because her two sons, though they were married for 10 years, apparently both uh, struggled with infertility in their marriages. Neither family had any children during that 10 years. And at the end of that 10 years, both of Naomi's sons passed away, one after the next. And so in 10 years' time, all three men who are part of this family are gone, and three women are left behind, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi hears that there is bread again in the land of Bethlehem, and so she decides to go back to Bethlehem. And the rest of chapter 1 is really Naomi's attempt to talk her daughters-in-law into not coming with her and going back to the land of Moab. 
And so the first time she tries to tell them to go back, she just encourages them to do so. She prays for them, blesses them, kisses them. She intends it to be a goodbye kiss. And yet after this first attempt, both of her daughters-in-law say, no, uh, Naomi, we're going to continue on with you. Well, then she tries a second time. And this time she tries to use reason to argue why it really makes sense for them to go back to Moab. And so she says to them, listen, I'm an old woman. Even if I were to get married today, and that's not likely, and even if I were to have a child tomorrow, and that's not likely, would you wait for 20 years for my sons to grow up, for me to have other boys, for you to marry again? In other words, she's saying, your your prospects of finding family are not really all that great if you stay with me. You'll have a better chance if you go back home to your people. Uh, Apparently, Naomi's speech hit home with one of her two daughters-in-law. Orpah hears that speech, and she kisses her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she says goodbye, and she turns around, and we see her walking back down that road to her home country of Moab. I believe that's actually a a sad scene in this story as you see Orpah going back to Moab because not only was she going back to Moab, she was also going back to Moab's gods. And as Orpah walks down that road back to Moab, she walks off of the pages of Scripture forever. And we do not hear her name again. Ruth, however, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, still is not budging. She is intent on going with Naomi to Bethlehem. And so Naomi tries a third time. And this time she tries to use peer pressure. She says, look at Orpah. She's going back home and you really should go with her. And it's at this point that Ruth speaks for the first time in this story. And the words that she speaks are beautiful words of commitment. Uh, You often hear these words spoken at wedding ceremonies, but what a lot of people don't realize is that these words uh, were not first spoken by a groom to a bride uh, or by a bride to a groom, uh, but rather these words were first spoken by a Moabite daughter-in-law to her Jewish mother-in-law. And here's what she said, verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. She literally says there, your people, my people, your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. By this point, Naomi can tell that Ruth is not going anywhere. And so the two of them continue down that road to Bethlehem. And when they come to town, the people are all excited. There's a hubbub in the streets of Bethlehem because Naomi is back again after she had been gone for 10 years. The people are excited to see her, and yet Naomi is anything but excited. At this point in her life, she was broken, and she was bitter, and she was angry, and she was beaten down by life. And you can hear that in the words that she says to the other ladies in Bethlehem. Look at verses 20 and 21. But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. You know, there's other places in the Bible where God changes people's names, but this is an example in the Bible where somebody tries to change their own name. 
And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore because the name Naomi means pleasant. It means sweet. Instead, she says, you need to call me Mara, a word that means bitter. And she said, call me bitter because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. He's given me a bitter pill to swallow. I went out full and he brought me back empty. His hand has gone out against me. In other words, he's treating me as if I am his enemy. That's what she's saying because that's really how she feels. Now, was that actually the case? Of course, we know that it wasn't the case. And the truth is, not even everything she said was correct. She says, I left full and he brought me back empty. The truth is, she left empty in the middle of a famine with nothing to eat. And the Lord protected her, provided for her for 10 years, and brought her home again. Now, she did experience tragedy during those 10 years' time, but she wasn't alone. She was accompanied by someone, her daughter-in-law, who had just made an incredible uh, commitment of devotion and faithful love to her. And she also didn't know what the Lord was up to, which we who have read this book before do know. That the Lord was going to do something amazing in Naomi's life. He was already working to bring it about, but she just couldn't see it yet. And the narrator hints so beautifully at what the Lord is up to in the very last verse of chapter 1. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Again, Naomi couldn't see it, but God was already working. He brought them home at just the right time, at at the start of barley harvest, when the workers would be out in the barley fields and a meeting was about to happen in those very same fields uh, that will change their lives forever. And it happens in the very next chapter. You know, as as we read that and as we think about what's going to happen in her life, I think it's so beautiful that it's in these very same fields that Ruth and Boaz met one another. That one night we read that there were shepherds a thousand years later who were keeping watch over their flocks by night when the angel of the Lord appeared to them and a choir of angels surrounded them and announced to them the news that the Savior of the world had just been born. Again, the Lord is at work, but Naomi cannot see it. At this point, she can only see the negatives of what was going on in her life. I know for many people, Christmas can be a very difficult time. Everybody else seems to be happy, seems to be joyful. But maybe you're not feeling that same joy in your spirit right now. Maybe it's because of some of the things that you've gone through in this past 12 months since last Christmas. And there may be some in this room right now that very much like Naomi, you've lost a loved one and this will be the first Christmas that you go through without that loved one present. There may be others here who have lost a job this past year and are struggling. There may be others who are dealing with something in their family, in their marriage, with their children. There may be others who are going through a health issue or maybe multiple health issues and it just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so as you experience all of these things, maybe you can even resonate with what Naomi said. You just want to say, call me Mara, call me bitter, because that's what it seems like my life is right now. And yet, friend, if that's you, I hope you will hear today that the same God who loved Naomi loves you. 
that, that he is with you, that he is at work in your life, even in ways that you cannot see. And in the same way that Ruth was an expression of, of faithful love to Naomi that would never leave Naomi's side, the Lord God has made us a promise that he will never leave our side. And if we belong to him, he is a father who never leaves us. He says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. But maybe you even hear that and you think, well, yeah, I know that's true. And I know that's in the Bible, but, but that's not how I feel. And, and right now, because of how bitter I am and how discouraged I am and how negative I am all the time, I just don't even see how God would want to be close to, to someone like me. And yet that's when we need to remember that when he said, I will never leave you and never forsake you, he didn't say, I'll never leave you when you're happy. He didn't say, I'll never leave you when you're at your best. He just said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And here's the truth about God's faithful love for us, church. God's love is bigger and better. It's better than our bitterness. And it's bigger than our brokenness. And even when we're grumbling and complaining in our spirit like Naomi was, and we know that we shouldn't be, even then, God's faithful love is there holding us, working in us, working around us in ways we just can't see. Now, as we move into chapter two of Ruth, there's another thing about this love story we need to recognize. It's not just a story about faithful love. It's also a story about gracious love that, that meets us and, and really overwhelms us with grace. Chapter two starts out by introducing us to the man through whom God's grace would be given to Ruth and Naomi. It says this, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And so this man Boaz was a close relative of the family. That's an important fact that, that will come up a little bit later in the story. He's also described as a man of great wealth, but the word wealth there can also mean might. It can mean strength. I really think that's what it's saying here is that Boaz was a strong man. Boaz was a man that was well respected by all of the people who lived in Bethlehem. <clears throat> After introducing us, to Boaz in verse one. In verse two, the storyteller takes us back to the home of Naomi and Ruth. And they're having a conversation. They're trying to figure out what to do next. Look at verse two. And we find there, so Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the fields and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. And then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And so here are these two uh, women who are back in Bethlehem. And yet in this day and age and in this culture, uh, two widows who did not have husbands, did not have children, did not have sons, uh, they were not in a position <coughs> where they had a whole lot of prospects about how to make an income and to make it on their own. And yet in the law of Moses, God had made a provision just for them. God had commanded the landowners of Israel to not harvest their fields all the way out to the corners and all the way out to the edges. 
He had told them not to go back through their fields a second time and make sure they got all of the produce of the field. But he told them intentionally to leave some of the produce behind in the fields. And he said, I want you to leave it behind for those who are poor and for those who are foreigners and for those who are widows. Now, Ruth happens to be all three of those things. And so way before Ruth's time, in the days of Moses, God had already made a provision for a woman just like her to be able to survive. And so that's what Ruth does. She goes out in the fields to glean during the harvest season what was left behind. And I love how the narrator says that she happened uh, to end up in the field of Boaz. And we need to understand that the narrator says that with a smile on his face. That he wants us to understand this didn't just happen. And this was the providence of God that was at work, the the providence of God that was leading Ruth to precisely this field on precisely this day when precisely this man was going to be met there. In chapter 2, there are several conversations recorded for us. We won't look at all of them. But first, we hear Boaz talking with his workers and asking who this woman was in his field that he did not recognize. And they told him, oh, that is Ruth, a Moabitess. And they told him about how hard she had been working all day. And apparently Ruth's reputation had preceded her. Uh, He had already heard about uh, how she, in a very noble way, in an admirable way, had left her home country and traveled with her mother-in-law and now was working so hard to provide for both of them. And, And Boaz was impressed by that. And so Boaz walks over and begins to speak with Ruth in verse eight. And, and just in the way that Boaz treats Ruth, even this first day that they met one another, I think it gives us a picture of the way the Lord has graciously shown his love to us. And first we see in, in the way Boaz treats Ruth, a picture of God's gracious love that protects us, that protects us. That's really the first thing that Boaz says to Ruth. He knows that she's a young woman working alone in a field with men all around her that she does not know, and she wants, he wants her to feel safe. And so what he says to her in verses eight and nine of chapter two, Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? It was a statement of his protection of her. And you know, in the same way, the Lord has graciously protected us. He is a warrior who fights for us. And we know when we read God's word that as Christians, we really have nothing to fear. We will not suffer any eternal harm because we are in his hands. And if the Lord be for us, then who can be against us? We also see in the way Boaz treated Ruth a picture of the way that God in his love and his graciousness provides for us. He provided for her by allowing her to glean in his fields. And later in the chapter, he gives her food from his own midday lunch. But at the end of verse nine, he also provides water for her. He says, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. In other words, you don't have to draw your own water and stop working. You can just go and drink the water that they've already drawn for you. And what a blessing that would have been to her. And and Ruth is blown away by his kindness. And she says, well, why is this? Why have I found favor in your eyes? 
And in verses 11 and 12, this is what Boaz says. Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you've left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. What a beautiful phrase that is. That Ruth had come under the wings of the God of Israel, and he would protect her, and he would provide for her. And of course, we know in our own case, the Lord has provided for us all the days of our life, everything that we have needed. So Boaz is a picture of God's gracious love to provide for us, to protect us, but also a picture of the way God lavishly blesses us. I love how after everything that Boaz had already done for Ruth on this particular day, he gives his workers some more instructions after lunchtime about how he wants them to treat her. Look at verse 15. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. And so he's telling his workers now to do something that really was unheard of. Uh, to, to allow her to come, not, not uh, way behind those workers, but to come all the way up right in the middle of the process as they were tying the bundles of grain together to be right there so she was able to get even more. And then, and then I love when he tells his workers, you know what, uh, it'd be okay if when you're tying those bundles together, if maybe you just kind of drop a few here or there. You know, just be a little bit careless. Don't be so careful in the way you're tying those things together. Just, just leave a few of those stalks of grain right there so that she can pick those up. And, and that's why at the end of this one day of work, she has the equivalent of six gallons of barley. It would have weighed between 30 and 50 pounds. And so now the only problem for uh, Ruth was how she was going to get it all home. You know, sometimes when we're down and when we're discouraged like Naomi was at the start of this story, I think we have a hard time seeing the evidences of God's grace in our life. You know, sometimes it's easy for us, isn't it, to see all the things that are going wrong? You know, we have a list. It's ready in our minds. Well, we could write it down at a moment's notice. All the things that are going wrong, all the problems that we're going through, all the reasons why we have to be discouraged. And sometimes it's hard for us to see the grace of God, the evidence of his grace. But what I would say, church, that we need to remember is, again, God has been so gracious to us. And even if the only grace we have received is the grace of salvation, that's still more grace, far more grace than any of us in this room deserve. But then on top of the grace of salvation, if you just take a step back and just kind of take an inventory of your life right now, can, can you not see a one or two stalks of grain that he's just let fall beside where you're standing? Can you not just see a, a couple of pieces of grain that, that, that he's let drop from the bundle to have some grace, some evidence of grace that is right around you in your life? The reality is he has been so gracious to us. He has been lavish in his grace, extravagant in his grace. And so as we picture Ruth walking home that day with 50 pounds of barley on her head, well, we need to think about that and think the Lord has given me that much too. He has been more gracious 
than I could possibly even understand. At the end of chapter two, Ruth makes it home with that huge load of grain and her mother-in-law, Naomi, is overjoyed. And not only is she overjoyed about the food that they now have to eat for a week or more, she's overjoyed because of the name of the man that Ruth tells her uh, she was in his field. Because Naomi recognizes that name, Boaz. And she knows that he's a member of the family, that he's a close relative. And, and I believe that in her mind, Naomi was already working a little matchmaking plan in her mind for the two of them that she's about to execute in the next chapter. That leads me to the third thing that this love story is about. It's a story about faithful love. It's a story about gracious love. But more than anything, this is a love story about redeeming love that is willing to pay the price. And we can really see that in chapters three and four of this book, but you see it hinted at even at the end of chapter two in verse 20. This is right after Ruth gets home and, and shows her all the grain that she harvested. This is what Naomi says in, in chapter two, verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man, Boaz, he's a, a, a relation of ours. He's one of our close relatives. Now the word, the Hebrew word that's translated close relative there is the word goel, which means a kinsman or a family redeemer. In other words, Boaz was in a position in the family where according to Deuteronomy 25, and you can go back and read that this week, but according to Deuteronomy 25, he was able to do something called a Leverite marriage. And, and the Leverite marriage was about God protecting a family so that a family that did not have any descendants did not disappear from Israel. And so he made a provision where a close member of the family would be able to marry a widow of, of someone who had passed away and then be able to carry on the family name by having a child who would really be a, considered an heir of the family member who had passed away and keep the name of that family alive. And Boaz was a close enough family member that he could be a Goel. He could be a family kinsman redeemer for Elimelech and carry on Elimelech's family name by marrying Ruth. And Naomi knows the family well enough to know that. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, she tells Ruth exactly what she needs to do. Look out with me. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, what she means by that is a husband, a place of rest, and so that it may be well with you. Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, uh, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And Ruth does everything that Naomi tells her to do. She gets dressed. She goes down to the threshing floor. But this is the part of the story that for our modern ears sounds a little bit strange. Naomi tells her, I want you to, to, to get down at his feet. I want you to take the, the, the blanket that is covering his feet and I want you to, to uncover his feet with the blanket so his feet are just, just there in the, in the cold night air and then just stay there. 
And that sounds super duper strange to us, but in that culture, this was apparently a nonverbal way of requesting marriage, of requesting that Boaz would be a covering over her through marriage and taking her into his home. And so as many people have said, if Ruth did not propose marriage that night, she at least proposed that he proposed. And that's what she did. And so she goes in, she uncovers his feet, and somewhere around midnight, uh, we don't know what happened. Maybe a cold night wind blew through the threshing floor, and he had a case of cold feet, right? But a different kind of cold feet. <laughs> he wakes up, and, and he's startled to see a, a woman lying at his feet that he did not recognize. That did not happen to Boaz every night. And so he can't tell who she is in the dark of the nighttime. And so he asks who she was. And then Ruth responds in Verse 9 of chapter 3, she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Now, despite what some have written about this part of the story, in no way was Ruth propositioning Boaz here in an immoral or ungodly way. She, in fact, is using the same language that he used out in the field. When he said, you have come under the wings of the God of Israel for refuge, Ruth is saying, you're exactly right, Boaz, and the Lord wants your wings to be his wings over me. What a beautiful picture of marriage that is. Now, for the sake of time, we won't read all of Boaz's response, but suffice it to say, he was very happy that she proposed that he proposes. And, uh, and so he protects her that night. He sends her home with a gift for Naomi before uh, the morning dawned. But he also tells Ruth about a possible fly in the ointment, so to speak. He tells her that there is one other relative who is a closer Goel, a closer kinsman redeemer than he is, who in fact has the, the first right of refusal to redeem the family name. And so Boaz wants to marry Ruth, but he wants to do it in the right way, in an honorable way. And he has to ask this other person first if he is willing to redeem the family and to marry Ruth. And so chapter three kind of ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Now we know that uh, Ruth is going to get married, but we don't know who she's going to get married to. We want it to be Boaz, but at this point it could be Boaz or it could end up being this other guy. And so we come to chapter four, the last episode uh, of this story. And in chapter four, we read the very next morning that Boaz gets up and he gets right to work. He goes to the gate of the city, which at that time was like the courthouse. This was the place where uh, issues were settled and resolved in the ancient world. And so he goes to the gate of the city and he's looking for this other man, this closer family member. And, and lo and behold, that's exactly who walks through the gate of the city at that time. And so Boaz calls out to him and he says, come aside, friend, and sit down. And, and I love the word in Hebrew that he uses for friend there. It's a Hebrew phrase, poloni almoni. Isn't that fun to say? You say that with me, poloni almoni. And, and what poloni almoni means, an equivalent for that for us in English would be so-and-so. In other words, he, he, he knows his name, but in the story, he doesn't even call him by name. It's almost like the narrator feels like he doesn't deserve a name because he leaves the story as quickly as he enters it. And so Boaz says, come on over here, Mr. So-and-so, and sit down. And so so-and-so comes, and he sits down, and 10 other men of the city sit down because that's what was needed to decide the case. And then he starts up what he's called this meeting for. And so we expect him to raise the issue of Ruth, and he doesn't do that right away. Instead, he brings up a piece of real estate. 
And apparently there was a piece of land that Ruth and Naomi, or excuse me, Naomi and Melimelech had sold 10 years previously before they moved to Moab. And he brings up this piece of land and he says, you are the closest kinsman redeemer. Would you like to redeem this piece of land? And uh, this guy says, absolutely I would. Because he's thinking, this is my lucky day. Uh, I'll look like a very charitable person uh, to, to buy this land for, for Naomi. Uh, but Naomi doesn't have any kids. She doesn't have any sons. And so as soon as Naomi dies, this land is going to be my land. And this land is going to stay in my family's inheritance forever after this. And so he says, sure, I'll take the land. But this is when Boaz saves his ace in the hole card that he's been waiting to play this whole time. And so in verse five, he says this to Mr. So-and-so, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. So he's saying, you understand, Mr. So-and-so, that this is a package deal, uh, that if you buy this land, you also need to marry Ruth and you need to raise up a descendant for Elimelech, who's not even going to be considered your own son. He'll be considered Elimelech's son. And I love how he tries to make Ruth sound as unattractive as he possibly can. <laughs> right? Remember, in the chapter before this, he describes her as a virtuous, noble, godly woman. Here, he just says, Ruth the Moabitess. He wants to make sure he knows she's a foreigner, number one. But then I love, he adds on to that, the wife of the dead. In other words, you remember what happened to the last dude that married this, this lady? <laughs> and so he does a very effective job here. And in verse six, this close relative, Mr. So-and-so says, I cannot redeem it for myself. What a surprise. Lest I ruin my own inheritance, you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Well, that's exactly how Boaz wanted this to go down. And so in verses 9 and 10, he announces to everyone at the gate, everyone in the city, his intentions. And he says there in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, the Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And the people said, yes, we are witnesses. And they blessed Boaz and they prayed for his family, and they even prayed that Boaz's name would be famous in Israel. And boy, did the Lord ever answer that prayer. Because here we are still talking about his name 3,000 years after he lived. And we said a minute ago that this was a story of redeeming love. And it is, but it is not just about Boaz and the way that he redeemed Ruth. The story of Ruth and Boaz is a story about a far greater redemption because we know when we read the rest of the Bible that there is a greater Boaz, there is a far more glorious Boaz who would come one day and redeem us all. And this is what that greater Boaz said in Mark 10, 45. He said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And just like Boaz was willing to pay the price to redeem Ruth and Naomi and their family, we have a greater Boaz who was willing to pay the ransom price 
that was necessary to redeem us and to set us free. And he didn't just pay a price of gold and silver at the city gate. Instead, the price he paid was his own precious blood when he suffered and died on the cross outside of the city gate. But he was willing to pay the price that was needed in order to set us free. In that way, the story of Ruth reminds us of that first Good Friday and that first Easter. But the story of Ruth also, of course, reminds us of Christmas. Because the reason why Boaz was able to redeem Ruth is because he was a goel, he was a close relative, he was near enough to be able to redeem her. You know, that's what Christmas is all about. That's why Jesus, the eternal son of God, was born in Bethlehem as a baby boy. Listen, Christmas is about our God coming close enough to us, being born as one of us so that he could redeem us. The truth is without Christmas, there could be no Calvary. For Jesus to be able to pay the price that we owed, for Jesus to be able to represent us through his death on the cross, he had to become one of us. He had to be fully man as well as fully God. Because of Bethlehem, like Boaz, Jesus was close enough to redeem. And like Boaz, Jesus was willing to pay the price to redeem. And and in these ways and in many more ways, the story of Ruth and Boaz is a picture of the story of our salvation. But listen, the story of Ruth and Boaz is not just a picture of our salvation. It's a part of our salvation. It's a part of the salvation story that God was writing. And here's why. At the end of the book of Ruth, There is a surprise ending that the storyteller has been keeping from us this entire time. After Boaz and Ruth got married, they had a son, a little boy that they named Obed. And then Obed had a son, and that son had a son. And verse 17 tells us all of their names. They called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So the grandson of Obed, the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth was a little shepherd boy named David. And we'll read his story next week, the story of when he was out in these very same fields outside of Bethlehem watching the sheep. And a prophet, Samuel, came to town and called for David to be brought in from the fields. And David knelt before him and Samuel anointed his head with oil as the next king of Israel. You see, the story of Ruth and Boaz doesn't end with Ruth and Boaz. It goes on through their family line to Israel's great king. And it doesn't even end there either. We're we're supposed to keep on reading all the way to the New Testament when we find these words in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son. That's why this love story is a part of our love story. 
And this is God's love story for all of us. Because it was through this marriage between Ruth and Boaz that God would give us King David. And it was through the line of King David that God would give us the son of David, the son of God, born to save us all. And it all happened in Bethlehem. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we praise you and thank you today for your redeeming love. Father, we thank you that you have sent us a redeemer, a greater Boaz, who has come to us in our brokenness and in our bitterness, who's come to us in our bondage to sin and death. But through his birth at Bethlehem, through his death at Calvary, and because he rose from the grave on the third day, we know that he can set us free. A ransom price has already been paid. And so, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that today. We pray today, Father, that as we think of this story, Lord, so often it's, it's easy for us to think of the things that are going wrong in our lives. Father, the problems, the trials, the difficulties that we have. But today, Lord, would you help us to be mindful of the evidences of your grace that are all around us. Father, as we stand in the barley fields today outside of Bethlehem and we look down at our feet, Father, we see stalks of grain everywhere. We see your grace on display. Father, lavish grace, grace that we do not deserve. And Lord, we pause to thank you for it, for your redeeming love to us in Christ, our greater Boaz. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, let's stand together and worship. If you're here and you have something on your heart right now that you're dealing with, please come and pray with one of our pastors. We'd love to pray with you. If you're here and you need to take that step of faith to receive Christ, to receive that greater Boaz, your Redeemer, into your heart, into your life, come and share that with us right now. We'd love to pray with you about that also. You come as we stand, as we sing.